0: Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. Dropping Books with Larry McMurtry, written by John Somery Smith. The late Larry McMurtry, author and bookseller extraordinaire, needs no introduction here. This is John Somery Smith's writing on the top of his form. The reader is Neil Pearson, the actor and bookseller Extraordinaire.
1: Dropping Books with Larry McMurtry It must be more than thirty years since I first met Larry McMurtry. He was already the author of six novels, and I had probably heard from Film Buff friends about The Last Picture Show, but no one had told me that he was a serious bookseller. Even when I talked to my wide acquaintance in New York about possible shops where I might buy interesting stock, no one mentioned Booked Up in Georgetown. In March 1977, I found myself in 31st Street for the first time when I'd been invited to lunch on 34th Street by David and Evangeline Bruce. In an hour and a half, I made several piles of books, literature, biography, travel and gardening books which I asked to be shipped back to Haywood Hill. Far from exploring Georgetown, as I'd expected, I had justified my shuttle ticket and made two new friends in Larry and his partner Marcia Carter. Over lunch, David Bruce asked me if I'd had an enjoyable morning. I explained my unexpected bonus and remember his reply very well. Do you mean to say that you have just travelled 3,000 miles to tell me that there's a good bookshop three streets away from me? He paused. We'll go there together after lunch. This is mentioned because of its aftermath by Larry in his recently published Books, a memoir, Simon & Schuster, $24 a subject that he has had in mind for several years and for which he'd mildly consulted me because we'd shared a number of bookselling memories. After my first visit, I called on Booked Up every time I went to America, never failing to find amusing books for our shelves in London. Larry remembers that, after toying with the idea of buying the Rex Whistler-Illustrated Gulliver's Travels and reluctantly declining it one year, I was delighted to be given a second chance a year later when the dollar happened to be considerably weaker. After each visit, my books would be carefully packed and shipped to London. The cartons took five or six weeks to arrive, but it was always exciting when the grey postal bags began to come through and we could assign the various books to particular customers, some of whom I'd alerted in the meantime, or freshened the relevant sections of our stock. Until I had defined the areas in which our tastes overlapped, I'd never seen the exporting of English books from the other side of the Atlantic. Where English academics tended to borrow their reference books from college or university libraries, better-paid Americans would buy their copies, collecting enough in their careers to be of value and of potential interest to the second-hand bookseller. What Oxford or Cambridge edited and published and Blackwell's or Heffers sent out, standard editions of Gibbon's letters or John Evelyn's memoirs, and library sets published by Nonsuch or Shakespearehead presses, we now found coming into American circulation at reasonable prices. I remember Larry appealing to my sensitive soul, or what passed for it, over a near-perfect set of the Shakespearehead Henry Fielding, It had belonged to a professor whom we both knew because he had apartments in both Washington and London. He only bought books in pristine condition, and Larry had bought this set only for one of his electric fans to make an indelible stain on a couple of volumes. The set had been put on a top shelf, with the two offending volumes as disguised as possible, but he dreaded the professor's next visit in case he noticed and asked for an explanation. Could I buy it at the price Larry had paid just to get it out of sight? Another memory comes to mind. On one of my visits to the East Coast, I spent a weekend in Georgetown, and Larry asked if I had any plans for Sunday. No, I thought I might take it easy, as bookshops would surely be closed. He suggested that he drive me to a warehouse fifteen or twenty miles away, where there was a stock of not very exciting biographies which had been offered to him. He had a key, and we were to share whatever we could find. If I started at the letter A, he would start at Z. We'd expect to meet at about the letter L or M. There was no table on which to pile our choices, and he recommended that I simply drop each book I wanted onto the concrete floor. In the first ten minutes, I heard his books dropping with worrying frequency, and as this continued, I asked if we could take a break. Perhaps he had a hidden formula, or just a much quicker eye, plus power of decision. He gave me a simpler explanation. We were dealing with 20th century American editions of biographies, the dust wrappers of which were different from the English editions, if we had been doing the same thing in an English warehouse, I'd have had the advantage over him. It was no surprise that we remet halfway through the letter H. Several years later, I was impressed by this same quickness. Haywood Hill had had as loyal customers a delightful American couple called Lawrence and Isabel Roberts. An Orientalist and former director of the Brooklyn Museum, Lawrence had directed the American Academy in Rome from 1946 to 1960. Together, from there, they had ordered books they had seen reviewed in the TLS, books by or about their many European and American friends, novels of quality and every sort of reliable travel guide, expatriates such as Harold Acton and Iris Arigo. When they left Rome, they took an apartment in Venice, their books were never collected under one roof, but stored in a Massachusetts barn belonging to Lawrence's brother Henry. Always on the move, they knew they should be finding a permanent home for their old age, but somehow objected to every possible suggestion on grounds of location or expense. In the end, Lawrence was by then over 80, one of their earliest Academy scholars, an architect, solved the problem by bringing them to a suitable part of Baltimore, and volunteering to look after the practicalities of the refurbishment and move. Once they had a roof over their heads, their library could be assembled for the first time. It more than filled the basement, and most of the other three floors had bookshelves wherever there was space. After a slightly unfortunate introduction to a local bookseller, they called me and asked when I was next likely to be over. They sounded a little desperate, but I couldn't come for a couple of months. Once there, I helped to harden their resolve to cull, but made sure that I didn't suggest removing anything that they would regret. Because of the high cost of shipping, I couldn't take a vast amount. In any case, they'd essentially been readers, not collectors. Luckily, I'd already alerted Larry, and he arrived in an impressive metropolitan suit— fresh from a pen meeting in New York. It was a humid September day, and he was soon in his shirt sleeves. I had organised which shelves were on offer, and in twenty-five minutes he had come up with a generous total of nine thousand dollars. He called Marcia in Washington and told her to shut the shop, summon an extra pair of hands, and bring a good roomy car to collect the books. You'll love the house, he said. It's got real style. Soon after this, Larry had a quadruple heart bypass. When he'd recovered, he decided to leave Washington and to return to his roots in West Texas. His grandparents had had a frontier ranch near Archer City, and with the knowledge that property was cheap there, he set up the first book town in America. By 1993, He had a stock of 150,000 books and invited me to visit him. Marcia was to come at the same time from Washington and he'd put us up in the only inn, not far from the courthouse and its disused jail. Larry hoped in time to use the latter as his crime department. We needed to start early in the morning because later in the day the heat became overpowering. I couldn't help comparing the books he had for sale with the magnificent private library that we'd glimpsed the previous evening. In books, he describes some of its main features, estimating the total number at 28,000. Even so, wheeling a special trolley back and forth, I accumulated enough to fill 16 wine cartons, with Marcia not far behind with fourteen. I was amused that, when he'd had the whole lot properly packed, he called me and reported that he felt his inventory had been raped. He was just setting out to buy some suitable replacements. Reading Larry McMurtry's books has brought back some happy memories of this and my two subsequent visits to Archer City. On the second visit, by which time his stock had grown to 350,000 books, We had two extra potential customers with us, Michael Thomas from New York, my oldest bibliophile friend in America, and his younger brother Jeffrey, who had an antiquarian business in San Francisco. We stayed in a bed and breakfast, where each bedroom was named after one of Larry's books. We all found good things to send home, and, thanks to generous Texan hospitality, thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. As the Internet has wiped many second-hand bookshops out of existence, so Larry has bought up some of their inventories. But the era of such a romantic approach, based on the wide range of his reading and his enthusiasms, is over. It is more than a year since he referred to Booked Up as his private deer park. That was
0: Neil Pearson reading... Dropping Books with Larry McMurtry, written by John Somery Smith and published in the autumn issue of The Book Collector for 2008. The Book Collector is a literary journal founded by Ian Fleming in 1952 covering the writing and collecting of books. You can subscribe to our journal at thebookcollector.co.uk for as little as £6 per month, and get access to our complete digital archive. If you would like to sponsor one of our future podcasts, do please get in touch at editor at thebookcollector.co.uk. Thank you.